Be blessed. Okay, well, I wanna, I'll say a few words about Bridges for Peace uh, before we uh, march on right here. Um, Bridges for Peace has been around since 1976, and really what we, we kind of have a, two streams or two uh, paths, if you want to say, uh, that we're dedicated to. On the one side, we're dedicated to bridging the gap between the church and the synagogue, or between Christians and Jews, showing genuine Christ-like love, compassion, and reaching out to them in an amazing way, as uh, many of the uh, Jewish people haven't been had, you know, with, as far as Christian encounters, it hasn't been very positive. There's a lot of suspicion and, and fear because when we look at church history, there's a lot of persecution on behalf of the church towards the Jewish people or people that called themselves Christians. And so the Jewish, a lot of the Jewish people have kind of a hesitancy, a resistance. And um, so we're bridging that gap. We're showing them Christ-like love. We're engaged with them. We're building relationships with them in Israel and around the world. Our international office is based in Jerusalem. My wife and I uh, lived there for a number of years uh, working, and we have eight national offices around the world. And what we're doing in Israel, a number of the things, is that we're, uh, as we're a compassion ministry, we're feeding over 22,000 people a month, distributing 60 tons of food as Christians. They know where it's coming from and building relationships with them. We've helped 57,000 uh, Jews move to Israel many of them moving there to escape anti-Semitism, the hatred of Jewish people, uh, and persecution. Uh, one of the areas that you can pray about is Ukraine. It is not getting better, and even though it's out of the news, it's amazing. We have contacts in Ukraine, Christians that are driving vans into these neighborhoods, and they're getting shot at to rescue Jews that are, like, hiding out in their houses. They have, a lot of them have no electricity, um, bombed-out houses. It really is kind of a, quite apocalyptic, um, and as the war there is uh, raging and there's different groups, um, that hatred spills out upon the Jewish people. So we're there, we're all over the world, like I mentioned, in eight nations. And so we're reaching out to the Jewish people and they're watching us. It's an amazing thing I've said before. Um, you know, many Jewish people, they say, you know, like, don't tell me what you believe. Let me follow you around for two weeks and then I'll tell you what you believe. And they're just trying to say a genuine heart. You know, it's, it's an incredible thing because I've met... Jewish people who have met, never met a Christian before in their life. Now, I love that because they don't have any um, maybe baggage or preconceived ideas. But many Jewish people that I've met, I may be the very first positive Christian experience they've ever had or the very first Christian who really loves them. It's hard to, it's hard to really transition or you know, compute that, is that people call themselves Christians and will not show love. But that is a very common thing that the Jewish people have experienced for centuries. The other side of what we do as an organization is reaching out to the church. Education, uh, conferences, we take groups to Israel, we encourage people to volunteer in Israel, to give to Israel, to pray, support Israel, and understanding that this isn't just some pie-in-the-sky thing, this is a very biblical concept. And understanding covenant in the place of the church and what God is doing in Israel is incredible. It's like this beacon. You look at Israel and you look at the world and the world's ex like obsessed with Israel. It's incredible. This little tiny slice of land that's the size of Lake Winnipeg. The entire world is obsessed with it. They're just looking at it under a microscope. And God is doing incredible things there. So I've been uh, just part of Bridges for Peace now. I've been connected with them for almost 15 years. But I've been part working full-time with them almost six years now in Israel and now based here in, um, in Winnipeg. And so it really is a pleasure and an amazing thing to be on the ground. As you know, whether it's Israel, Burundi, Philippines, 
it's incredible to see, you know, the Lord take down blinders and to connect Christians in the church with the lost and difficult situations that are happening in the world right now. I mean, we, you can just see the news and um, it should give us a heart. It shouldn't just be something we post on Facebook. It needs to be something that we speak out, that we get involved, that we pray, that we wear out the material on our knees, on our pants or jeans or whatever you're wearing with prayer, that we really engage. And so it is an amazing thing. But God is faithful. You know, I think that's, that's the one assurance. God is faithful. You know, this world may seem to spin out of control. Things may be beyond my grasp, my little grasp, but God is faithful. And he says it, and he shows me every day that he is faithful, even when times are incredibly tough. And so um, that is an assurance. That should just make our faith just blossom, is that, that we're not alone. Okay, so the title of this sermon is The Kanaf. And I'm going to keep you in suspense by not telling you what the Kanaf is. If you know, do not whisper it to somebody beside you at all. I have very good hearing. Um, but it's the Kanaf, act of faith inspired by Scripture. And today and next week, um, I, we will be ta- looking at two encounters Jesus had. Two encounters Jesus had in the Gospels, and we're going to unpack those. Like, what's behind that? Okay, so th- this is an incredible thing. Anybody can just read this story and understand. If you have a heart to understand, God will reveal things to you. But we also got to remember that this is 2,000 years ago. People then are different than people now. They're writing from a culture and, a, and customs and what things mean. And oftentimes the gospel writers are just like assuming their readers know what they're reading. Well, because we're removed by 2,000 years of time, culture and customs, we have to dig a little. Like I said, you can, you can understand what's going on, but to, to unlock those hidden gems, and I'll show you, and we'll demonstrate that to you this morning as we look out at Mark chapter 5. But um, when you unlock that, I think it just gets richer. And it connects dots, and it connects dots, hopefully, that maybe you didn't see before. So we're going to turn to Mark 5, 25 to 34. It'll be up on the screen, but I'm going to go the old school way and, and read it right from actual paper. Okay, Mark 5. Okay, right, there we go. Keep missing Mark. There we go. Okay, Mark 5, 25 to 34. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So this is an incredible encounter that is also repeated in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20 to 22, and Luke 8, 44. This same story is, is examined in those three Gospels. And what we're going to do is we put them all together and we get a full picture. 
Because in the book, in the Gospel of Mark, he, he talks about her touching his clothes. But like, where did she touch him? You know, on the, on the shoulder, on a sleeve. Where did she touch him? Well, when you look at Matthew and Luke, they tell you um, right where she touched him. And, it, and they, describe, they use the words, the hem of his garment or the border of his garment. So not only did she just touch his clothes, she touched a specific place. And so the, what is happening here? Because we want to examine this. So on the surface, it can, on, you know, you can understand the scriptures, but we're going to go and look at the Jewish Hebraic context of this event and expound that, explore that, and, you, and hopefully you'll be a little bit surprised. And this, this story will mean so much more to you um, as we go on beyond today. But first, let's uh, kind of look at geography. Where are we? So this is Israel and the continent of Africa, Asia, and Europe. It's like a land bridge. Okay, and it's right there on the map. Um, now, zooming in a little bit, this is Israel in the time of Jesus. The Romans were occupying it, and it was divided into Roman provinces. You might have heard of the Decapolis, a system of ten Greek-styled uh, or Hellenized-styled cities. So it was divided into provinces of, of under Roman administration. Now, zooming in a little bit closer, we see the Galilee. Now you've heard of the Sea of Galilee, but the, the Galilee or the Galil is a region of northern Israel. So it's, it's not just a sea, it's a region, but it is a sea as well. And along the Galilee were little towns, and on the northern tip of the Galilee is a town called, or a village, Capernaum, or Kafarnaham, the village of Nahum. And this is this place where Jesus does lots of his ministry. He teaches in the synagogues. He teaches and does miracles there. Peter lives there. This is like the stomping ground of this ministry that Jesus calls these disciples to. And it's, it's, an, it's an amazing place. It's a small little place. And if you were to go to Capernaum today, you can, they've excavated. You can see the, most of the village and the synagogue and all of this. And this is all genuine. This is all real first century um, stuff. And um, Capernaum was small. So when you think of roads or streets, they're very narrow, pressing. So when Jesus is going through these streets, I mean, it would, there'd be a lot of people rubbing up against him, pushing past him. And we know in the context of this story, he's going and he heals this girl that's died, Jairus or Urias, the, the, one of the chief the elders officiating in the synagogue who would have lived near the synagogue. So Jesus is leaving Peter's house and he's going to Jairus because he's been called and this is where we find this woman touching his, the hem or the border of his garment. Now, what is the hem? What's up with this? I mean, it's kind of like interesting. Why didn't she just cry out? Why didn't she grab his hand? Why didn't she grab his ankle? Like, what's, what's going on with this? Because this is a clue. This is the fact that the gospel writers zoom in on what she touched is very, very important. Now, the hem, the corner of the garment, we're going to look at numbers. It's identified also in Deuteronomy, but I'm going to read Numbers 15. What is this hem or the garment? Numbers 15, 37 to 38. It says, Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. 
and that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. Now, this is an incredible thing. These were visible reminders of being a follower of God. So a Jewish male, right from the time of Moses, would have these tassels on the corners of the garments. Whenever they would see the tassel, they would know, I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm part of the covenant. I'm one of his people, one of his children. This is an identifying mark that all Jewish men would wear. This is an incredible thing. And there were other things as well that God called through Moses, called the Israelites to do or to have as visible reminders. And you know, this isn't archaic and ancient stuff. It's not, we do that today. You know, you've seen a Jesus fish on the back of a car or maybe someone of faith has a, a cross around their neck. Like we have visible reminders that identify, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he's the son of God. I'm a Christian. We have these visible uh, images that are precious to us. We don't worship them, but we, it points us and directs us to God. And it makes you kind of stand out. You know, like if, if you're, as a Christian, if you're going around in your everyday life and nobody knows you're a Christian and thinks you're kind of just like anybody else, something's wrong. You know, we're to stand out. And Jesus said that, that the world would hate us and despise us and persecute us because of who we are, because of the, 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 the light that we emanate. And so these are visible reminders. Now the tassels represent the 613 commandments of Moses and they were tied with eight knots on each corner. So they were the formed the, the hems of a garment or a mantle or like a prayer shawl. And I brought one today just as an example. So this is a prayer shawl, a modern prayer shawl. And all Jewish men would wear this when they pray. So they'd put it over their head like this and they would pray with it. And on the corners are these. There's four of these. So these are the tassels, the tzitzit. This, this reminds the person wearing it that I am praying to and a follower of the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's interesting because even in Matthew 6.6, 6, it talks about a room or a closet, going into your room or your closet to pray. And many scholars think that's, a, that's kind of a metaphor or a symbol of the prayer shawl, just shutting out, you know, like the prayer shawl becomes like a room or a closet, like a horse that has blinders so it doesn't distract, you're not distracted by what's around you, you focus on God. And that's a, a, a reminder that we can really run with even today, is that how many times do we have good intentions oh, I'm going to read my Bible or I'm going to spend some time at the Lord or pray or do this. And then our phone rings or we start texting or Facebook or we watch this or that or we go, we get distracted. And we need to just calm down and focus on the Lord. Zoom in on his heart and have a heart willing to hear from him. No, be private, no distractions. And that's an incredible thing. Now the Greek word Mark uses in, the, in, this, in this passage is himation which means like an outer garment or mantle. And the experts say that this is, the, the connotation is this, the, the tassel. And when we also look at the other Gospels, we can zoom in on what this is. And so they specifically draw us to this. And, you know, it's, it's like the Gospels say that, like, oh, if, if we had written a book for everything, if we would written everything down that Jesus did, not all, the world couldn't hold or contain all the books. So, you know what? When something's mentioned, that is very important. That should draw your attention there. So the fact that the Gospels zoom in on what she grabbed, that should take, you know, grab our attention. 
Now, this is the thing. So I'll, I'll leave you with, you don't have to be in suspense anymore. I'm going to give it away. This is the kanaf, okay? The tassel, the edge of the garment, that tassel is the kanaf. And what a kanaf means is wings, okay? So this is the wings. She grabbed Jesus' wings. She grabbed the hem of his garment. Now, the kanaf isn't just some outward symbol of identification of, oh, I follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is also considered the authority of a man. So beyond just this, I, you know, I, I relate to the Lord, and this is a visible reminder, it's also a, a symbol of a man's authority, who he is, who his identity is, what his status is in society. And this is what the woman grabs. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave this whole miracle, this whole story for a moment, and express this in another way. In 1 Samuel 16, 12 to 13, David has been anointed with oil by the, the prophet Samuel. So he's anointed with oil. He's going to be the next king. And uh, the kings of Judah were known as anointed ones. It means a Mashiach, a Messiah, a Christ, Christos, one who is anointed. And it's an amazing thing when we zoom in on this because Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. And we see that in other, in other uses in John. First John, he, he describes Jesus as the, the ultimate righteous one. But to be righteous in the first century was to be someone who loved the scriptures and followed them. Observant. Somebody who, that was their heart. Because John the Baptist was described as a righteous one. And his parents were described as righteous. Even Joseph was and Mary were described as righteous. But Jesus is the ultimate righteous one. Well, in the same way with the anointed one, he's the ultimate anointed one. Because all the kings of Judah were anointed. Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and so on. So David is anointed and chosen by God through Samuel to be the next king. The problem is, there's already a king, Saul. And we know that Saul, in a lot of foolishness and doubt and um, lacking of faith, he's done all kinds of things, and God eventually removes that anointing from Saul, and he chooses David. And in 1 Samuel 24, 4-12, we see this culmination of events. Saul is hunting David to kill him, because he knows Saul wants his son Jonathan to be the next king, not David, and he's also jealous. So he's hunting David, and he hunts him to a place called En Gedi, which is in the southern Israel, it's in the desert. And En Gedi, though, is an oasis with different caves and waterfalls. It's a beautiful place. You can go there uh, today and hike and swim. But this is a place where David hid out, and Saul kind of like tracks him to this area. And Saul goes up, and he thinks he's alone. He doesn't know where David is. And the scriptures say he was either sleeping or relieving himself. He really had to go. Couldn't wait. And so David sees him. He knows he's there. And David's men say, go and kill him. Now is your chance. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. Now it would have been easy to kind of come to that conclusion. This man is trying to kill you. He's been chasing you. He's, he's, uh, obviously, he's had the anointing removed. And obviously, that anointing has been given to you. So why not? Now, David doesn't kill him, but David does something. He wants to send a message. So he creeps up, and he cuts off Saul's kanaf. He cuts the hem of his garment off. And in the Hebrew, it uses that word, kanaf. He cuts the hem of the garment off. Then what happens? This is an amazing thing. He's convicted. I mean, he didn't just, like, ruin Saul's nice clothes. He took something deliberately, and he's convicted because he realizes, I've desecrated something that God instituted. 
And what does he do immediately? He repents. He asks for forgiveness. Not only that, because he sinned against God, so he, he, he comes out, he exposes himself. Here's the man who's been hunting him, trying to kill him. David comes out and calls out to him. I mean, what's holding Saul back from killing David right there? But he does it. He, he shows himself and asks for forgiveness and shows what he's done. Saul realizes, wow, I could have had my, I could have died. And, and he, for, like, there's this bonding, forgiveness with David. Saul's heart doesn't really change, but he spares David's life. And he realizes that he's, he came this close. So, but that's an amazing thing. By cutting this, David is so convicted. So convicted. And, he, and his reaction, and David's a man after God's heart, his reaction is to repent and ask for forgiveness. Now we're going to come back to the woman with the issue of blood. She would have been living on the outskirts or out of Capernaum. Obviously close, close enough to know Jesus is there. But she would be removed. Why? Because she isn't, uh, she's following Levitical law. Levitical law tells you if, if you if you have an issue of blood like that or diseases and ailments, and when you read through, it tells you that these are issues of uncleanliness. She's, you know, she, she, this is an issue of purity. Now, God's not being mean. God is showing Israel in, these, in those days and through Moses when they pen these commandments, he's showing Israel what holiness is. And he shows us what holiness is. Don't take holiness for granted. If you're going to come and engage and be my people and worship me, then you need to be purified of the heart. Even Moses talks about circumcising the heart. But these were physical reminders to mental, for an individual to mentally be prepared of what that meant, what holiness meant. So if you had an ailment or if you had something, there was priests there to help you or there was different offerings that you would do or you would wait until a, a period of time passed to be able to be uh, able to present yourself and be purified. So the woman was removed. She was not living within the, the community. She would have been living, like I said, on the outskirts or out, outside. Because this is an issue that's afflict, afflicted her for 12 years. And I'll show you in Scripture. So the problem here is Jesus is described. This, there's two problems that arise out of this. If we under, how we understand the rigid guidelines that were set up by God to be enforced within the Israelite community for basis of ritual purity. There's two issues that arise. The first is this. Jesus is described as a high priest in Hebrews 3 and 4. So that carries with it the highest spiritual office. Priests were to maintain very strict levels of purity. I mean, it's, they're, they're ministering on behalf of the people. The people are coming to them, and these people, they're ministering on behalf of the people to God, the Most High. And when we see um, at times in the Old Testament where Israel didn't, or people didn't take God's holiness seriously, we see incredible consequences with that. So Jesus is also a rabbi, and, he's, and obviously he's a Jewish man. He's fully God, fully uh, man, but he's a Jewish man. He's part of the Jewish community. Now, according to Leviticus 15, so here's the evidence. This is it. Leviticus 15, verses 25 to 27. This, this in, in its full context, this is what the woman is suffering. This is her position. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, 
All the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness or of her impurity. Whoever touches those things shall be unclean. He shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. So this is the problem. She reaches out and touches Jesus. Scripture tells us if somebody encounters this impurity, they have to ritually bathe and go through a process to be clean by evening. It also tells us that for the woman, if, if, she, if she isn't, until that discharge is gone, as, as long as it's ongoing, she remains unclean. She's been unclean for 12 years. This is, this is it's, I mean, it would have been devastating for her. Now she rushes in to touch Jesus, and we know that she does so by her faith. Her faith. Jesus, we see Jesus' reaction. But could Jesus be contaminated? We don't see. We don't see that at all. And Jesus can't be contaminated. He's sinless. He's made to look like sin, but he's sinless. And we, ne- we don't see a single time where Jesus encounters sick people and then has to go off to the side and clean himself and, and wait and pray and ritually, like, make himself in right standing with God. We don't see that at all. When Jesus touches things, people are healed. When he touches sick people, the leprosy instantly goes away. When he touches someone who has a a demon in them, the demon flees. When he touches a dead person, the person stands up. But we never see once Jesus having to clean or to go through a a purification. But this isn't isn't a thing in the society. When you're unclean, you don't just go over and like tag your it and start touching people. Like this, that's a serious violation of the commandments. That's her second thing. Is that first, by touching Jesus, she can make him unclean in the, in the society. Secondly, for someone to deliberately violate a commandment and deliberately do that and touch people or make them impure or refuse to be separated, this could incur banishment or even sometimes death. So she's like, literally like, either her social position in society or her life, she's taking this into her hands to come through the crowd and reach out and touch Jesus. So Jesus' outward symbol of authority is this, the kanaf. He has four of them on the corners of his garment. Now, was this superstition? Why would why wouldn't the woman just grab his hand or touch anything else or just cry out to him? It's not superstition. We're going to look at this, Malachi 4.2. More than likely, this woman knew about this messianic prophecy, this declaration in the, in the prophetic book of Malachi. Even if she didn't know, she still understood what this meant for her to touch that. So it's his authority. And God, working through this, literally breathes into a prophecy and makes it like a literal fulfillment. Like, listen to this. Malachi 4.2, this is about the Messiah. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. The Son of Righteousness will arise with healing in his kanaf. And she believes this and grabs the kanaf and is instantly healed. This is an amazing thing. Act of faith inspired by Scripture. She would definitely have known Scripture. She believed he was the Messiah. She believed he had the power to heal. And she believed 
um, what she was taking hold in her hand. This is not an accident or chance. Scriptures prophesied that the Messiah would have healing in his kanaf, and we literally see Jesus fulfilling three, at least 300 or more prophecies to the people and to the world of who he was and is. Now, when she touches his kanaf, he credits that as faith. If it had been superstition, I mean, Jesus knows the heart. He would have said something else. But he credits it as faith. Your faith has healed you. And he declares it. This is an amazing thing. Messiah would have healing in his wings. We need to reach out and grab a hold of his wings. People struggle with sickness. People have financial issues, depression. People have all kinds. We have all kinds of issues. Not a single human being in the face of this world doesn't have any issues. Issues are different person to person. And we're lost unless we reach out and grab the kanaf, his wings. And it's an incredible thing. Jesus came into contact with someone who was sick and restored her. Jesus cannot be contaminated. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He rose from the grave. He sits at the right hand of the Father. What he touches transforms because he touches each and every one of our lives. When you don't know him, the wage that must be paid is death, separation. But because of what he's done, we can reach out and grab his kanaf. And he restores. And he says, you're mine. You're mine. And he heals. And he brings us to him. And it's an amazing thing when we think of healing. You know, I, I, had, a, I had a friend who passed away from cancer. And this was the second time he had cancer. And he really felt the Lord had healed him the first time. And then years later, the, the cancer came back. And I spoke to him a week before he passed away. I didn't know he was going to pass away the next week, but I knew he had very limited time. And he was struggling because he just had really thought that, this, that the Lord had healed him and wiped it clean. And I said, you know, Christopher, I said, you're guaranteed healing. He says, you know, don't give me false hope kind of thing. He's really struggling. And he had issues in his family. I said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not messing around here. Because first of all, do you believe that God could heal you still at this point? Even though doctors have said you have days. He says, yes. I mean, we see that in scripture. Hezekiah is that close to death. And he just throws himself to the Lord. And the Lord restores him and heals him and adds 15 years to his life. God can do that. We see Jesus. Nothing is impossible for God. But he also will restore us 100% even when we die. I said, Christopher, you're either going to get healed or he's going to take you home and you'll be looking at him face to face and you'll be 100% healed forever. Like this, that's even the best. I mean, it's like we can get healed of things in this world and we still get colds or sickness and one day if the Lord tarries, we die. But when you see him face to face, I mean, this is eternal healing. I said, He's going to restore you. You'll be sitting, standing and looking right at him face to face. And we, we struggle at times. Why does this person get healed, but I don't? And, you know, I've met, I've met mighty people of faith that died because of or, or suffered. But then I've also met mighty people of faith that were healed. I, just, I had one just recently, a close friend. But either way, we trust in God. We're in this broken world, this broken world of sin, but we trust in God. We're in the world, but not of the world. And Jesus is the ultimate healer. He's the one we grab a hold of. And in Hebrews 4, 11 to 16, 
This is the Jesus we serve, the great high priest. It's an incredible thing that we can come boldly to the throne. It doesn't say like come crawling or like tiptoeing like you're on like, you know, thin ice. Come boldly to the throne. That Jesus mediates. He advocates on our behalf to the Father. He says, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Hold your, your gavel of judgment, Father. This one's mine. I've saved him. I've, I've covered him in the blood. I was faithful. He's mine. And then that gavel of judgment goes away and it's like arms open. If mercy, welcome. Come here. You're my child. Jesus advocates on our behalf. It is a beautiful relationship. And it's a beautiful solution to sin. It's like sin is destructive. It's death. It splits us and divides us. But then God has a plan. It says that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the earth. God had a plan. And he bridges that gap through Jesus, through the saving power. And we can be healed through that. And I urge you to just cling to him. Cling to him. Reach out. Even when it seems hopeless. Look at this woman. She, she can't even speak, and she's fearful and trembling, knowing she's been healed. But she clung to him in faith. That was, that was good enough. They didn't need a big show. It was good enough for her. Just touch. Touch the authority. Touch his kanaf. I'll be healed. That's it. An amazing, amazing thing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord. We bless your name, your holy name. We thank you. We can gather here as a church family. We can pour over your word. We can sing our hearts out. We can fellowship. We can have courage. We can have perseverance. We have assurance. We have eternal life through you. We pray that we will not take this for granted. We will not take our worship, our fellowship, our freedoms, There are so many places, Lord, in the world where people are under attack, where people can't gather like this. Lord, may we not abandon them. May we pray. May we act. And if you so call us, maybe go there physically to show and share the love of Christ, to demonstrate that here. We are all called to be lights. This isn't a professional job for only certain people. We are all called to be a witness, all called to be lights in this world, Lord. And we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for your word, which guides us. We thank you for godly leaders that you place in our path. We thank you for friends and family. We cry out for those who are, uh, do not know you, Lord, that you would soften hearts, reveal yourself to them by your Holy Spirit our counselor and guide. We thank you for Cross Church. We thank you and pray blessings over Pastor Allen and Gloria that you would just give them an incredible rest. Hold out your kanaf to them and just let them hold on to it that they may rest, be healed of being tired or anything that's going on, that they would just um, praise your name, Lord. And I pray the same over each and every person here today, Lord that this encounter would be continuous and that we would yearn for you. This isn't just a once a week encounter, that may we live and breathe this. Teach us how to be your disciples, Lord, how to follow you 
and to live for you and to be imitators. And we thank you, Lord God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Be blessed and have a lovely, incredible week. God bless.